Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. We're so glad you could attend. Come inside, come inside. Emily Dickinson was someone I returned to again and again. The lines were deeply personal, as if they had been written just for me. These days of heaven bring you nearer and nearer, and every bird that sings and every bud that blooms does but remind me more of that garden unseen. Audre Lord, black lesbian, mother, warrior, poet. I remember how being young and black and gay and lonely felt. A lot of it was fine, feeling I had the truth and the light and the key, but a lot of it was purely hell. It's not okay for children to get hurt. This Way Out, the international LGBTQ radio magazine. I'm Lucia Chappelle. Top Hong Kong court orders legal rights for queer couples. Two U.S. courts greenlight pediatric trans healthcare bans. And classic lesbian poets targeted by today's book bans. Those stories and more this week because you've discovered This Way Out. I'm Joe Bainline. And I'm Melanie Keller. With NewsWrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBTQ communities around the world. For the week ending September 9th, 2023. A historic ruling by Hong Kong's Court of Final Appeal calls on the government to remedy a failure to fulfill its constitutional duty to legally recognize same-gender couples. The five-judge panel of the top court said that those couples must have a sense of legitimacy, which dispels any sense of them belonging to an inferior class of person whose committed and stable relationships are undeserving of recognition. At a press conference, Esther Lung of Hong Kong Marriage Equality emphasized the progress the ruling represents. Today, the court of the final appeal made a landmark decision regarding the legal status of same-sex partnership in Hong Kong. It is a significant victory which makes clear that Hong Kong law must afford due respect and protection to same-sex couples. This will help families while hurting no one. Also, it makes another important step toward equal love and more harmony society for all. Chinese University of Hong Kong Gender Studies professor Sung Yi Tong applauded the positives for the city-state. This judgment is also very important for Hong Kong society as a whole, for both um, businesses that want to bring talent to Hong Kong, as well as how Hong Kong positions itself as an inclusive society. Still, the court order failed to open civil marriage to same-gender couples. It said that the government could establish an alternative system to legally recognize those couples without calling it civil marriage, such as civil partnerships or civil unions. Hong Kong Marriage Equality Legal Advisor Barrister Azan Marwa acknowledged the discrepancies. The court achieved this by recognizing that all people have a private sphere. They have the right to have family and they have the right to have relationships with other people. This relationship in heterosexual couples is largely protected by marriage. So the court is saying there should be something similar to, but not the same as marriage that provides them with a status that will give them protection. The court gave the government two years to fulfill its constitutional duty. 
Hong Kong's relative autonomy since it rejoined mainland China in 1997 has been strained in recent years. Activist Jimmy Shamsi Kit filed the winning challenge to Hong Kong's refusal to recognize his legal New York City same-gender marriage in 2018, but he could not be in court for the September 5th victory. As a leader in the pro-democracy movement, he's been in jail since Beijing's harsh 2020 crackdown. Pressure from Beijing also keeps Hong Kong's government lagging behind its more socially progressive citizens, A poll earlier this year found 60% of Hong Kongers supporting full civil marriage equality for lesbian and gay couples. That's a sharp uptick from just 38% a decade ago. A European Court of Human Rights ruling has also ordered a framework for legally recognizing same-gender relationships without specifying marriage equality. The September 5th decision came in the case of Bulgarian lesbian couple Darina Koilova and Lilia Babulkova. The city of Sofia refused to register their legal UK marriage in 2016 because the southeastern European country's constitution defines civil marriage as exclusively heterosexual. They failed to get relief from Bulgaria's court system, so they filed a complaint in 2020 with the European Court of Human Rights. They cited provisions of the European Convention on Human Rights that require respect for privacy and family life. The Strasbourg, France-based court agreed with the couple that Bulgaria had violated their rights by not recognizing their legal union. The seven justices wrote in their unanimous opinion, It is clear to the court that to date, the Bulgarian authorities have taken no steps to have adequate legal regulations adopted with regard to the recognition of unions between persons of the same sex. Again, the court did not specifically require civil marriage equality. However, the Bulgarian queer rights group, DSTV, argues that the ruling obliges the Bulgarian state to create a legal framework that allows same-sex couples to receive adequate recognition and protection of their relationship. An inquiry from Ajas Franz Press received no immediate comment from the Justice Ministry. Transgender young people seeking access to gender-affirming health care suffered two setbacks in U.S. courts this week. The Texas Supreme Court refused to support a lower court's temporary injunction that had prevented a ban on such health care from taking effect. Under the guise of protecting children, the Republican-enacted law bars medical professionals from addressing gender dysphoria in patients under the age of 18 with puberty blockers, hormone therapies, and other non-invasive treatments. It also forbids gender-confirming surgery for minors, which is rarely, if ever, a treatment option anyway. The American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association, virtually every major healthcare organization in the U.S., describe medically guided gender-affirming health care for trans minors as an often life-saving process. The Gay and Lesbian Medical Association is one of the plaintiffs in the lawsuit challenging the law. Its media statement decrying the high court's September 7th ruling warned, By allowing discriminatory practices to persist within the health care system, the court threatens not only the physical health, but also the mental and emotional well-being of countless Texans. The state high court did not explain why it disagreed with the temporary injunction State District Court Judge Maria Cantu-Hexel issued last week. She had decided that the constitutional challenge to it is likely to succeed. The challenge to the law will continue in her court, although it now becomes enforceable. 
In Georgia, federal district judge Sarah Garrity has lifted her temporary injunction, preventing a similar pediatric trans health care ban from taking effect. She had ruled that the state's transgender young people faced imminent risks if the law is enforced. In her opinion, it is likely to be declared unconstitutional. Her September 5th reversal was prompted by the decision of a three-judge panel of the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals that allowed Alabama to enforce its trans youth health care ban. The same Republican-dominated appeals court oversees Georgia law, so Garrity said that her temporary injunction could not stand. Rather than lifting the injunction entirely, she issued a stay on its enforcement pending a possible appeal of the Alabama ruling to a larger panel of the 11th Circuit. Finally, California's Chino Valley Unified School District teachers and staff won't be outing transgender students for now. Judge Tom Garza of the San Bernardino Superior Court has granted State Attorney General Rob Bonta's request to temporarily block enforcement of the district's new policy. It requires school officials to inform their parents or guardians whenever a student asks to use a name or pronoun or requests access to facilities or programs that don't match the gender on their official documents. Bonta's lawsuit contends that the outing policy violates the privacy and equal protection provisions of both the state and the U.S. constitutions. Judge Garza scheduled another hearing for October 13th to determine if his injunction should be extended. Chino Valley Unified School District Board President Sonia Shaw was defiant on Fox News Digital. It's definitely to try to blackmail and to scare us and to scare other districts because they know other districts are scheduled to adopt, hopefully, this policy all throughout California. And so to me, it's also bad on Bonta's part when our staff should be focusing on the education of our children. He's tying them up with these kinds of reviews when he knows that they're frivolous and they have no standing. Shaw is proud of her district's role as the first in the state to adopt the trans student outing policy. True to her predictions, other conservative-run school districts in California are following suit. Similar policies are being enacted in the Temecula, Murrieta Valley, Anderson Union, Orange, and Rockland California Unified School Districts. Attorney General Bonta has warned all of them that they're risking lawsuits like the one he filed against Chino Valley, as he told Los Angeles TV station KTLA. Here's what they're saying. They're saying that uh, a child can tell us that they're going to be hurt. And, uh, but we're going to have this mandatory policy anyway in the name of parents' rights. And we're going to tell uh, the parents and the family. And then after the child is hurt by a family member, um, it's okay because we will report that fact that they got hurt to the proper authorities after they're hurt when the child told us that they were going to get hurt and we could have avoided that harm in the first place. It's not okay for children to get hurt. This policy puts them in harm's way. That's News Wrap, global queer news with attitude, for the week ending September 9th, 2023. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap is written by Greg Gordon, edited by Lucia Chappell, produced by Brian DeShazer, and brought to you by you. Thank you. Help keep us in ears around the world at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast and much more. For This Way Out, I'm Melanie Keller. Stay healthy. And I'm Joe Bainline. Stay safe. Sing if you're glad to be gay. Sing if you're happy that one.
Tom Robinson reminding you that you're either listening to, discovering for the first time, or tuned right in to This Way Out, the international lesbian and gay radio magazine with Lucia Chappelle and Greg Gordon. Our listeners support This Way Out in many ways. By subscribing to our e-newsletter. Email us at info at thiswayout.org. And through your financial contributions to our program. More information about how you can give is online at thiswayout.org. Thank, Thank you. you. We discovered and explored our attention to women alone. Sometimes in secret, sometimes in defiance, sometimes in little pockets that almost touched. Why are those little black girls always either whispering together or fighting? But always alone against a greater aloneness. An ode to a vanishing poet is one of a pair of timely flashbacks. These days of book banning have been hard on queer authors, even writers who have been among the classics in classrooms for decades. This Way Out celebrated two revered lesbian poets during the month of September 2003, and in 2023, their books are being pulled off the shelves in many U.S. states. Clearly, it's the right time to go back to school with this vintage essay from queer life and lit commentator emeritus Janet Mason. A lady poet of great acclaim, I have been misreading you, I never knew your poems were meant for me. Emily Dickinson and I did not hit it off on the first date. That is to say, on introduction to her work, I saw her, or rather was taught to see her, as a ladylike poet writing of hearts and flowers, tendrils and vines, the stuff of which had absolutely nothing to do with my life. In junior high, when I came across Dickinson's work, I was already a hell-on-wheels, hard-drinking adolescent, a product of my 1970s working-class environment that put me on a collision course headed toward disaster. It was my love of language that got me through. I've often heard it said that poetry serves no purpose. Perhaps that is true if one takes a completely materialistic and emotionally bankrupt view of life. But the fact is that two lines of poetry saved my life. Shakespeare's, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, creeps through this petty pace from day to day. I didn't know it at the time, but that I could recite this part of Hamlet at will, even if I was on my way to being blasted or hung over from the night before, embedded in my mind that I would have a tomorrow. A tomorrow was not a petty thing to have. A few of my friends didn't make it. In midlife, I find myself reflecting on the past. I wonder if things could have been different for myself and for the close-knit gang of teenage girls I hung out with. I wonder if a lesbian reading of Emily Dickinson could have halted our self-destruction and consequently saved a few young lives. It took a few more years for me to grow up, stop drinking, and come out as a lesbian, and when I did, I found myself falling head over heels in love with poetry. Emily Dickinson was someone I returned to again and again. There was something clever yet profound in her verses that I memorized. The lines were deeply personal, as if they had been written just for me. 
I found her public persona intriguing. She was portrayed as a spinster, a recluse dressed in white, the eternal virgin who had nothing to do with men. A few more years passed, and I went back to visit the Dickinson homestead in Amherst, Massachusetts. I was there with a group of friends, some of whom lived in the area and were just visiting her home for the first time. It was ironic, really. There we were, a room full of lesbian poets, listening to the tour guide's official rap about the cloister and asexual Emily Dickinson trapped in her father's house. There was something sinister about the house, foreboding. But behind the house, in the flower garden, was a beautiful wash of colors. And as I sat in the garden on a white wrought iron bench, I peered through a shady grove to the neighboring house. I remember it being painted in the glowing hues of peach, at once golden and pink. There was something mysterious about this house, set back as it was from the road, directly approachable from the Dickinson homestead. If I were Emily, I could not have resisted its magic lure. I found out later that this house is where Susan Huntington Dickinson lived. She was Emily's sister-in-law, married to Emily's brother, Austin, and she was the love of Emily Dickinson's life. She was muse to Emily, her intended reader, thoughtful critic, and, by more than a few accounts, she was Emily's lover. In correspondence to Susan, Emily wrote that Susan was imagination itself. These two women were close friends for 40 years, and they lived next door to each other for 30 of those years. In Open Me Carefully, Emily Dickinson's Intimate Letters to Susan Huntington Dickinson from Paris Press, the editors point out that over the course of their lifelong friendship and love affair, Emily sent countless numbers of letters, poems, and a form of writing that Emily came to call the letter poem. And on many of these letters, placed for Susan to see when she unfolded them, Emily had written her careful instructions, Open Me Carefully. Emily Dickinson lived in puritanical New England from 1830 to 1886. After her death, any mention of Susan was carefully removed from her poetry, and this essential body of correspondence was neglected. Still, even with the erasure of Susan's name, which Emily had written at the top of so many of her poems, it is obvious that they are essentially lesbian love poems. Consider, for example, the piece that begins with the line, Her breast is fit for pearls. Susan. Her breast is fit for pearls, but I was not a diver. Her brow is fit for thrones, but I have not a crest. Her heart is fit for home, I, a sparrow, build there, sweet of twigs and twine, my perennial nest. Emily. In Victorian New England, Emily Dickinson certainly could not mention her most intimate body parts, but she did a pretty good job of using the birds and bees as metaphor. These days of heaven bring you nearer and nearer, and every bird that sings and every bud that blooms does but remind me more of that garden unseen, awaiting the hand that tills it. Dear Susie, when you come, how many boundless blossoms among the silent beds. To separate Emily Dickinson from her lesbian passions is a cruel and unnecessary act. Not only does it do a disservice to Emily's poetic genius, but it also deprives her readers of a deeper comprehension of Emily and therefore of a deeper understanding of themselves. That's what literature at its best does. It leads us home. It really doesn't matter if Emily Dickinson ever made love with a woman, although my guess is that she did and most likely did so rather skillfully. What matters is that she experienced deep, rending passion that must at times, under the circumstances, have been painful. A lesbian reading of Emily Dickinson places her firmly in the center of her own page. 
When I think back on my visit to her house, I can see her clearly now, sitting down at her desk after her daily chores were done, as she smooths the white folds of her skirt and picks up her quilled pen. As she writes, her cheeks are ablaze with longing and desire, that essential lesbian desire. With commentary on Open Me Carefully, Emily Dickinson's intimate letters to Susan Huntington Dickinson from Paris Press, and thanks to Deborah D'Alessandra for production assistance, this is Janet Mason for This Way Out. This is Dorothy Allison, author of Bastard Out of Carolina and numerous trashy pieces. You're listening to This Way Out, the international lesbian and gay radio magazine. Alongside Emily Dickinson, another esteemed member of today's Band Authors Club was profiled by Kathy Sanchez in September 20 years ago. Teacher, gifted, generous, courageous, exuberant. These words and more have been used to describe Audre Lorde, poet, author, and activist. Born on February 18, 1934, to immigrant parents, Lorde was the youngest of three daughters. Her career as a poet and activist began in high school when her school's paper refused to publish a poem she wrote. She turned then to a national scene and had her poem published in Seventeen magazine. This was indicative of Lord's life, breaking boundaries and moving beyond. She grew up in Harlem during the Depression and graduated from Columbia University and Hunter College. She held numerous teaching positions, toured the world as a lecturer, and collected a host of awards and honors for her works. Thanks to recordings from the Pacifica Radio Archives, we are able to savor some of Lord's best works and thoughts. Here, Lord recalls being young, black, and lesbian in New York City. I remember how being young and black and gay and lonely felt. A lot of it was fine, feeling I had the truth and the light and the key, but a lot of it was purely hell. There were no mothers, no sisters, no heroes. We had to do it alone, like our sister Amazons, the riders on the loneliest outposts of the kingdom of Dahomey. We, young and black and fine and gay, sweated out our first heartbreaks with no school nor office chums to share that confidence over lunch hour. Just as there were no rings to make tangible the reason for our happy secret smiles, there were no names nor reasons given or shared for the tears that messed up the lab reports or the library bills. We were good listeners and never asked for double dates, but didn't we know the rules? Why did we always seem to think that friendships between women were important enough to care about? Always, we moved in a necessary remoteness that made, what did you do this weekend, seem like an impertinent question. We discovered and explored our attention to women alone, sometimes in secret, sometimes in defiance, sometimes in little pockets that almost touched. 
Why are those little black girls always either whispering together or fighting, but always alone against a greater aloneness? Much of Lord's work was rooted in anger and sexism that makes the history and treatment of African Americans and women. Lord carried themes of violence, hunger, struggle, pain, love, hope, and growth in her works. In her book, The Cancer Journals, Lord chronicled her battle with breast cancer. She challenged the traditional notions of illness and advocated women's ability and right to make decisions about their health. Breast cancer and mastectomy are not unique experiences. They're ones that are shared by thousands of American women. Each of these women has a particular voice to be raised in what must become a female outcry against all preventable cancers, as well as against the secret fears that allow these cancers to flourish. May these words serve as encouragement for other women to speak and to act out of our experiences with cancer and other threats of death. For silence has never bought us anything of worth. Most of all, may these words underline the possibilities of self-healing and the richness of living for all women. There is a commonality, you know, of isolation and painful reassessment that is shared by all women with breast cancer, whether this commonality is recognized by us or not. Now, it is not my intention here to judge the woman who chooses the path of prosthesis, which I think is a path of silence and invisibility, the woman who wishes to be the same as before. She has survived on another kind of courage, and she is not alone. Each one of us struggles daily with the pressures of conformity, the loneliness of difference from which these choices seem to offer escape. I only know that they do not work for me, nor for other women who, not without fear, have survived cancer by scrutinizing its meaning within our lives and by attempting to integrate this crisis into some useful strength for change. The Cancer Journals won the American Library Association Gay Caucus Book of the Year Award in 1981. Lord wrote from the heart. She was articulate and powerful. She garnered respect and attention for writing about racism in the feminist movement, sexism among African Americans, and lesbian love. Audre Lorde died on November 17, 1992, in St. Croix. Lorde continues to be an influence in expression and activism. This has been a celebration of the life and works of Audre Lorde, black lesbian, mother, warrior, poet. Special thanks to the Pacifica Archives for recordings and to Lambda.net and to the University of Illinois for biographical information. I'm Kathy Sanchez. Band queer poets Audre Lorde and Emily Dickinson. Better read them while you still can. Thanks for discovering This Way Out, brought to you by the nonprofit Overnight Productions. Newswrap was reported this week by Joe Bainline and Melanie Keller and produced by Brian DeShazer. 
Our archival correspondents were Janet Mason and Kathy Sanchez. The Tom Robinson Band, Creedence Clearwater Revival, Holly Near, and Billie Holiday performed some of the music you heard, and Kim Wilson composed and performed our theme music. This Way Out thanks the Kicking Assets Fund of the Tides Foundation and Richard Merck and Brad Payton of Silicon Valley. Listener donors make this program possible. Ask us for more information. Look for This Way Out Radio on social media, email us at info at thiswayout.org, or write to us at P.O. Box 1065, Los Angeles, California, 90078-USA. For coordinating producer Greg Gordon and the entire This Way Out crew, I'm Lucia Chappelle. Thanks for listening online at thiswayout.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And on WBDY Binghamton, New York, CJLY Crawford Bay, British Columbia, Radio Free Santa Cruz, Santa Cruz, California, and a wide array of community terrestrial and internet radio stations around the world, including this one. Stay healthy, stay safe, and stay tuned, y'all.